0: Hello and welcome to our Case Reopen series, which is a very limited series on this occasion of just two episodes. This is something we like to do when we're on a mid-season or end of season break, or on our end of season 9 break right now, back with season 10 on the 13th of September. And this really is an opportunity for us to kind of fill that gap and revisit an episode that has really resonated with us for one reason or another. It's my turn this week and I wanted to open the archives and dig out this particular episode which is all about the assassination of Kim Yong-nam who is the brother of Kim jong il the authoritarian dictator of North Korea. So I was inspired to cover this case when a film distribution company got in touch with us in 2021. They were distributing a film called Assassins, which was all about the assassination of Kim Yong-nam, a documentary feature film, and they wanted some help publicising that film. So uh, we wanted to work with them. We didn't get paid for for this. It wasn't about that. We just thought it was an opportunity to do something a little bit different. Uh, I think initially the distribution company wanted us to interview the director of the film. But that's not really befitting of what we do. So we worked together and came up with the idea of just basically doing an episode on the assassination of Kim Jong-nam in the hope, really, that it would whet people's appetites and they would want to find out more and then go and, and watch the film, which was a brilliant film, by the way. Um, I have always been fascinated with North Korea and I really enjoyed researching the Kim dynasty in particular because I knew nothing about how that family had come to power in that country they're three generations in now, and it's a kind of bollock story. Um, it's all just made up, really, uh, to get them into power. So very interesting for me, not necessarily for everybody else. Um, I also love that Kim Yong-nam had managed to get away from his family and from that regime and start a new life in Macau with his own family. But equally, I understood that he really did struggle to put everything behind him. So people looked for him. Uh, and wanted to work with him and one such organisation was the CIA who he occasionally passed information to about the regime and also Kim Jong nam couldn't help himself from trashing the North Korean regime and his brother on occasions and I think I say it in the episode but I think the clock was always ticking on him it was only ever a matter of time before his brother got to him but I don't think we ever anticipated it would be in such a public space as kuala Lumpur international airport this uh This episode always makes me think of the l o l sweatshirt that one of the assassins was wearing. I'm still looking for one of those, so if anyone knows where I can get one, please do let me know um but it's a it's a really sad case as they always are um and I think actually with this case it's easy to forget that Yong Nam is the victim in all of this he was a family man he loved and was loved and he had a chance at a normal life and it's just sad that that never happened for him or that it did happen but it didn't last Um, so here it is Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark.
1: And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again, guys. And hi!
0: This week, we head east to Kuala Lumpur, the capital city of Malaysia, a city that has bared witness to one of the most audacious assassinations in modern history, the 2017 execution of Kim Yong nam the brother of North Korean dictator, and all-round cray-cray, Kim Jong Un, But before we head there, we would like to thank our wonderful Patreon supporters, especially this week's newest supporters.
1: Yes, a massive thank you to Mariana Pinzon, Leanne Heffer, Rachel Cunliffe, Corinne Todd, Kate Foss, Sarah Burl, William Westrop, Kerry Griffin, Andrew Brown, and Jordan Conroy and Jane Tomlins, who have signed up annually. So thank you so much. Huge thanks to each and every one of you. And if you'd like to join these guys, then you can head to patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And if you already have joined these guys, we will see you at Book Club.
0: Can't wait. See you on Thursday. See you tomorrow if you're listening to this on the day it's released. Uh, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. We both will.
1: I'm so excited for this episode, Mark, because it is something I know nothing about so I'm just gonna be it's gonna be one of those episodes where I'm just a listener and I'm just sat here just going wow
0: <laughs> yeah I remember it at the time it was I'm, I'm obsessed with North Korea and um, the whole kind of Kim dynasty so I'm a real geek around it so I knew I would always cover this at some point
1: yeah I think I've heard of him and i've heard of the fact that he was assassinated and that's probably as far as it goes for me yeah um and my understanding of north korea um and my kind of knowledge of it is very 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 vague so
0: oh okay yeah you you find it interesting because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delve right into that. So, um, so yeah, I, I will take you to the day of Kim Yong-nam's murder in real time in a moment, and also to the sensational trial that followed. But before we go there, I did want to set some context around North Korea and the Kim dynasty. North Korea, officially known as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, oh the irony, is a country in East Asia comprising the northern part of the Korean Peninsula. The country is bordered to the north by China and Russia and to the south by South Korea, with the heavily fortified Korean demilitarised zone separating the two countries. Or enemies, I suppose you could say, because they fucking hate each other. North Korea, like its southern counterpart, claims to be the legitimate government of the entire peninsula and its adjacent islands. It's a relatively small country with a population of approximately 25 million and North Korea is a totalitarian dictatorship with an elaborate cult of personality around the Kim dynasty, the country's ruling family for the past three generations. It's a communist state with most services, including healthcare, schooling, housing and even food, funded by the state. There is no religion in North Korea. The Kim family are essentially God and they are worshipped in the same way.
1: I think it always amazes me that North Korea and South Korea are so, so different and yet attached and so close and and with the same name in their names and stuff like that. It just amazes me how so different they can be.
0: I'm glad you said that, because that was one point that I've not really made clear. Um, so yeah, so the, these are two countries, they are part of the same peninsula, they are separated by this demilitarised zone, but it's, I don't know, like a, a couple of miles in width. Um, so there really isn't a lot separating these two countries, but uh, South Korea is, is very Western, um, it's kind of East meets West, and North Korea is just completely bonkers, totally different. It's widely accepted that North Korea has the worst human rights record in the entire world. Freedom of speech, movement, association and expression are all severely restricted and torture, ill-treatment and executions are commonplace. People perceived as hostile to the government are deported to labour camps without trial, often with their entire families who are by default punished by association. There are said to be millions of North Koreans in these so-called labour camps and I can only begin to imagine the reality of daily life there. Very few accounts have been put on record, one because very few people make it out alive and two because even less people get out of North Korea and talk but from snippets of testimony that I've read people talk of having to eat rats and grass to survive. They talk of torture and rape. Of a truly hellish existence. So, with that constant threat of punishment looming over them, it's not difficult to understand why the vast majority of North Koreans are so compliant to the regime. In many ways, North Korea is a fascinating country. As I said at the beginning of this episode, I'm totally obsessed. And whilst I wanted to give you a little bit of background in order to provide some context for today's episode, I can't go into loads and loads of detail because we would literally be here all day talking about this weird country.
1: Jesus, shut up, Mark. Get I on know, with it. <laughs> it's a history lesson. But no, it would be really interesting, though.
0: Honestly, yeah.
1: Do you know what? This is going to prompt me to go and do some research into North Korea, I think, in a bit more detail.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If if you're like me and and you are fascinated by this country, or if you're like Bethan and you're looking to explore it in a bit more detail, there are loads of great documentaries that you can watch including Michael Palin in North Korea, which is a two-part series. I think it's still available on My5 if you're in the UK. So that's North Korea. We'll kind of leave that there. That's a little history lesson for you, not to be outdone by Bethan's history lesson last week into Dunkirk. Um, And the history lesson is almost over, but not quite, because I do want to set some further context around the Kim dynasty, But before we do that, let's hear from this week's show sponsor. The Kim dynasty is a three-generation lineage of North Korean leadership, and it descends from the country's first leader, Kim Il-sung. In 1948, Il-sung came to rule the Northern Territory after the end of Japanese rule in 1945 caused a split to the region. So that's where North Korea and South Korea were formed. Il-sung rose to power through various quasi-legitimate political movements around this time. And when he died in 1994, power was passed to his firstborn, Kim Jong-il, who got ill in 2011 and died, passing the baton to his son, Kim Jong-un, the current leader of this weird country. Hopefully you're still with me, there are a lot of Kimmies here. Um, so the Kims have basically created this dynasty, a kind of ruling royal family, the type of which we saw fit to get rid of hundreds of years ago in this country. And the dynasty has gone unchallenged for two reasons. One, because of the culture of fear that hangs over the country and two, because of some bullshit ideological discourse that the family is descended from some weird mountain in North Korea that I can't be bothered to name. And there is a bit more to it, but I can't even be bothered to dignify this kind of bullshit with further explanation but it's um it's it they're almost styling themselves on a kind of Adam and Eve philosophy and and all fellow North Koreans descended from this one great family, which is just bollocks
1: so did you say that the people i know obviously it's difficult to know whether it's just they say they do believe this because of fear or Is it almost like a religion to people there? So, totally, yeah. So people do believe that these people have descended from a god or the gods.
0: Yeah, it's not. It's not just fear. It's um. It's all they know. So it kind of reminds me of um when somebody is kidnapped and uh kept in a cellar or a basement and they give birth to a child and that child is born into that environment and that's all they know so they don't know that the sky exists, they don't know that the internet exists, that kind of thing. So um so yeah, while there is that massive culture of fear, it it, it is something that they truly believe also. So there you go, that is nearly a thousand words on North Korea and its weird ruling family. Kim Jong Nam, the subject of today's show. The brother of Kim Jong-un, North Korea's current, and I hesitate to use the word, supreme leader, was actually first in line to take over from his father when he died in 2011. Jong-nam was his father's firstborn, and he was doted on. In the decade leading up to his father's death, he was being primed to take over. That was until a rather ill-fated 2001 trip to Disneyland in Tokyo. Yong Nam took his family there for a long weekend that saw them indulge in everything that the North Korean regime stood against capitalism, fun, and most disgracefully of all, American culture. America was North Korea's arch nemesis, and the dictatorship despised everything it stood for greed, democracy and consumerism. When news of Yongnam's Nam's trip reached his father, he was expelled from the family and from North Korea. He had brought shame on the regime and on the people of North Korea, and his position as first in line to the seat of power had been taken by second in line, Kim Jong un. Jong nam sought diplomatic exile in Macau, an autonomous region on the south coast of China, known colloquially as the Las Vegas of Asia. So it's a bit, to me, like the whole Prince Harry situation right now. Um, you've got this member of what is essentially the royal family exiling themselves to a different country and kind of having nothing to do with the regime anymore Interestingly, it has been said that Kim Yong-un's mother, unhappy that her son was not first in line to the throne, sent spies to track his brother Yong-nam's movements and when she heard reports of his trip to Japan, she immediately brought that to the attention of his father and of course that then guaranteed her son Yong-un would be in pole position to ascend to the throne when the time came, which was in 2011.
1: That is cheeky Isn't that but savage? also like you kind of get it like that mum wants her son instead,
0: absolutely, and yeah, then you do
1: wonder, like did they actually go all out, and was it as bad as it was reported, That's true, or yeah. you know, oh yeah, my gosh. Is she
0: just kind of like embellishing it, and um, however,
1: I- he did then go to this, like. Vegas of Asia. So well, yeah, I maybe think he it, just loves a bit of fun. <laughs> I
0: think he is a bit of a party boy or he was. Um also yeah just I've, I hope I hope I've made it clear but uh, Kim Yong Nam and Kim Jong Un whilst they had the same dad had different mums and there was actually a 10 year age gap between the brothers so the current leader Kim Jong Un uh, was 10 years younger than his brother Kim Yong Nam. So whether the whole uh, Disneyland trip was true or not, we don't know. But it would kind of make sense, of, as we've said, in terms of the mum reporting that so that her son could then ascend to power. So Yong Nam was effectively cancelled. And as I said, he went off to Macau to live what has been described as a relatively quiet life where he went by a different name. I don't think he had a job, not an official one anyway, but he and his family lived a comfortable lifestyle. Yong Nam had six kids, a mistress and he liked to gamble. He was definitely a bit of a party boy. So whilst Yong Nam may have been comfortable in a material sense, he wasn't necessarily comfortable in a physical sense. There was a constant threat hanging over him, particularly so once his father had died and his brother had come into power. Yong-nam's brother, Kim yong Un was only 25 when he took over as North Korea's supreme leader following his father's death in 2011. He was inexperienced and he found his authority being questioned in the early days of his reign. It seemed the whole world was questioning whether he was capable of carrying on the Kim dynasty. The country was unstable and its subjects had endured famine and hardship under the Kim family's reign. Maybe it was time for a change, time for a real people's democracy. There was a very real fear in those early days that the military might stage a coup, an insurrection from within to overthrow Kim Jong-un, and he was worried. Consequently, he set about asserting his authority in the most brutal way possible, by picking off his dissidents one by one until they were all gone. This included several family members who had questioned his leadership, such as his uncle, who was allegedly fed alive to a pack of dogs who had been starved for several days.
1: I remember hearing about the potential of that story and obviously nobody knew for definite whether it was true or not, but it was something that had come out of the country and in the news reports, and it was just like, Christ, that was his uncle.
0: Yeah, it's barbaric, isn't it? And we, we don't know if it's true. It could just be a story that was put out to really instill this fear around Kim Jong-un. But these kind of public executions did serve as a warning to others who dared to question him. And so North Korea became even more brutal, and Kim Jong-un was a dangerous man, not afraid to get blood on his hands. Whilst Yong Nam continued to live outside of the regime, he grew increasingly fearful for his safety. He genuinely feared his younger brother, but this didn't stop him talking to the media. He questioned the legitimacy of the Kim dynasty. He refused to be silenced, even though his life was under constant threat. And it really was under threat in the years following his brother's rise to power. There had been several legitimate attempts on his life at his brother's behest. At one point, Yong-nam even wrote to his brother, asking him to withdraw orders to assassinate him. He begged him, writing, please withdraw the order to punish me and my family. But Kim Yong-un paid no attention to his brother's pleas.
1: That is absolutely crazy, like having to write to your own brother and be like, please don't kill me and my family. Basically
0: was, it was like this really formal letter, please don't kill me. And that's how desperate he was. But it is interesting that Yong-nam... Um. although in such fear of his safety and and that of his family, still continued to speak out against the regime.
1: I think it's quite, it's so brave anyway, but it's lucky that he did so that we actually can know some of the things that were going on. If he hadn't, then we wouldn't know so much.
0: Absolutely. And there's, there's a lot more that we know because Yong Nam was working for the CIA and exchanging information in return for cash. So um, so that kind of intelligence would have helped countries like America prepare for an attack from North Korea, which at times felt like it was imminent. So Yong Nam's days were numbered. It was only going to be a matter of time before his brother got to him. The 13th of February fell on a Monday in 2017. Having flown to Malaysia from his home in Macau a week earlier, Yong-Nam now found himself at Kuala Lumpur International Airport, as he prepared to fly home to his wife and children. He had spent the past few days in Langkawi, a group of islands 30 kilometers off the coast of Malaysia. There, he had met a man working for the CIA. Yong Nam had exchanged information about his brother's regime in return for 136,000 US dollars, which he was carrying in a rucksack as he walked through the airport that morning. Yong Nam had arrived at the airport two hours before his 10.50am Air Asia flight home, but he would never make that flight. Within an hour of arriving at the airport, he would be dead. Having been assassinated in a packed terminal in broad daylight in front of dozens of passengers. So I'm now going to take you there in real time as I tell you what happened to Yongnam on that fateful morning. It's 859 am and Yongnam has just walked through the automatic doors of the departure terminal of Kuala Lumpur International Airport. Dressed in a smart blazer dad jeans and formal shoes, and carrying that rucksack full of cash, this bold, middle-aged, overweight man looks unassuming as he stares up at the departure board. The terminal is a vast expanse of open space, with various kiosks dotted around the edge, check-in desks to the rear, and large imposing bollards punctuating the concourse. It's busy, but it's so vast you would barely notice. Young Nam heads to a kiosk to print out his boarding pass. He's travelling on a false passport under the name of Kim Chol, an alias that he's used for a number of years. Travelling under his real name poses a significant risk, not to mention a diplomatic nightmare if travelling between countries that do not have a healthy relationship with North Korea, which, let's be honest, is most of the world. He touches the screen to begin the process of printing his boarding pass, but before he can move on to the next step, he is violently jolted from behind. He feels a pair of wet hands covering his eyes. The hands grab at his face and then disappear. And then it happens again. Another pair of hands grab him from behind and they are also wet. Yong Nam doesn't have time to process what's happening. He turns around and hears a woman saying sorry. Through his hazy vision, he can just about make out her silhouette as she runs off into the distance. Yong Nam can feel an oily substance on his face, and as he regains his composure, he begins to feel sick and his leg starts twitching. He loses his balance now. He hasn't got a clue what these women have just smeared all over his face, but he knows this isn't going to end well unless he seeks urgent medical attention.
1: That is so creepy and horrible. And just I was so just expecting sudden. that he'd get shot or something. No. I didn't think
0: And it gets oh, worse. Oh that's
1: so weird. Oh
0: So now limping slightly, Yong Nam walks over to a group of police officers who are stood in the terminal. Struggling to speak clearly he gesticulates wildly at them with his hands. It's immediately apparent that he's in distress and the officers take him to a medical facility at the airport where he is placed on a stretcher. Sweating profusely, Yong Nam writhes in agony. His condition is rapidly deteriorating and he soils himself. As he attempts to speak to the doctors who are treating him, a mixture of vomit, blood and saliva spurts from his mouth and hits the hard clinical floor, splashing the doctor's leg as it bounces off the concrete. Yong Nam is unresponsive now. He's slumped on a stretcher and he's not breathing. The doctors quickly discuss his condition and agree that he is displaying all of the symptoms of a nerve agent poisoning. They ram a needle into a prominent vein in his neck and administer one milligram of atropine, a medication used to counter the effects of nerve agent poisoning. His heart rate increases and the doctors inject him with adrenaline. But Young Nam is still not breathing. The doctors know they need to act quickly if they are to save him. They open his mouth to attempt tracheal intubation, the placement of a flexible tube into the windpipe to maintain an open airway. But there's a problem. His mouth is full of vomit and blood. So they grab a suction device and remove this and successfully open up his airways. There's nothing more they can do now. Yong Nam needs to get to a proper hospital and fast. The doctors strap him to the stretcher and transport him through the airport before putting him into a waiting ambulance. Onlookers stop and stare. As the ambulance sets off towards a nearby Putrajaya hospital, 45-year-old Yong Nam goes into cardiac arrest and dies.
1: That is absolutely crazy how quickly all of this has affected him and nothing they've done has really made any difference. And,
0: And, like, this is an amazing medical facility at the airport. It's not like a medical room. This is a medical facility with doctors and Uh, medications that can be injected and all sorts of stuff so he received very good very quick medical care but it just wasn't enough. Back at the airport four North Korean men are going through security laughing and joking with each other before they head for the departure gates where they will shortly catch a flight bound for Jakarta. From here, they will fly to Dubai, then Vladivostok in Russia and finally on to Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. Elsewhere at the airport, the two women who had grabbed Yongnam from behind vacate the terminal and get into separate taxis. One of the women is sick all over the upholstery as she makes her way across the city. Two days after Yongnam's death, an autopsy was carried out and traces of the nerve agent VX were found on his face. The autopsy established that Yongnam's lungs, brain, liver and spleen were all affected by the poison. The authorities had also established by now that Kim Chol was actually Kim Yongnam. When this news is leaked to the media, the world erupts in united condemnation of North Korea. VX is used by militaries in chemical warfare. North Korea were known to stockpile large quantities of it, and it was very clear to all that Kim Jong-un had his brother's blood on his hands. So, with the eyes of the world's media on them, police in Kuala Lumpur set about investigating Yong-nam's execution.
1: Yeah, it just seems a bit crazy though, because Kim Jong-un hasn't exactly been quiet about this. It's not it doesn't take a complete psychic to work out who's tried to kill him. Well, who has killed him? Yeah. Who has executed him? Um, that he's literally said, "I'm going to kill you," yeah. and has tried numerous times. So, is it is he really going to be that bothered about people investigating him?
0: Probably not. But they. Did need to investigate it because these two women weren't from North Korea that had actually administered the VX agent to Kim Jong-nam. Um, so they need to be investigated. And I suppose um, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia is looking to hold somebody accountable because somebody has been executed in broad daylight on their turf and they need to do something about it, even if that's uh, getting a scapegoat because they know they're not going to they're not going to hold Kim Jong-un responsible for this or those four Korean men that were leaving the country at the time of the execution. We'll come on to it in a bit more detail. But but yeah, I don't think Kim Jong-un's that bothered. He knows that people will know it was him. And it just goes towards enhancing that cult of personality that surrounds him.
1: Yeah, it's so crazy. I'm so interested to know more about these two women as well. Like, Did they genuinely know what they were doing? Did they not? Like, what were they told? What weren't they told? Like, I'm so intrigued by this. This is absolutely crazy.
0: All will be revealed. So when officers reviewed CCTV footage of the attack, they quickly identified the two women involved and they were arrested within days. 28-year-old Vietnamese national Doan Thi Huang was arrested at Kuala Lumpur International Airport two days after the attack. And the following day, 25-year-old Indonesian national C.T. Asha was arrested at an undisclosed location. Believing the two women were political spies acting for North Korea, a judge remanded them in custody pending a murder trial. Doan and C.T., the two women, denied all allegations that were put to them. They claimed not to know each other and said they had been at the airport that morning to film a prank for a YouTube video. They said they believed they were smearing baby oil in Yongnam's face. They said they had done this before for other videos and that they had no idea who Yongnam was. Over the following days, detectives went through the CCTV footage from the airport with a fine tooth comb. They could see Doan and Siti lying in wait before being directed by an unidentified man to attack Yong Nam as he stood at that kiosk. After the attack, as detectives followed these two women's movements, they noticed that they made their way to two separate bathrooms in the airport. Doan, wearing a white long-sleeved t-shirt emblazoned with the letters LOL, walked in a peculiar fashion as she made her way to the second floor bathroom. She held her arms out awkwardly, half raised from her body as she walked. Furthermore, when her handbag, which was draped diagonally from shoulder to hip, shifted itself to her stomach, rather than move it back in place with her hand, she sort of thrust her hips to swing it back to her side. I just couldn't really write that in a way that would explain it. But you know when you've got like the strap... That does makes that make perfect sense, sense. Yeah. I get it. So you've got like the strap diagonally, the bag moves itself to your tummy, and you want to move it back yeah. to your hip, Yeah. Because
1: if you're carrying like a load of soup, like shopping in the supermarket or something, you don't have a hand free to do it. So you'll kind of wiggle a little bit. Yeah. But if you think you've got baby oil on your hands, I mean, even if it's a really nice handbag, you could just use like the back of your hand or something. Like you could, you wouldn't do that. No. And you wouldn't be holding your arms weirdly. That's so bizarre. Yeah.
0: I mean, she's she, she walking in a really peculiar fashion, as I said, because yeah. she's holding her she's hands away from herself. She's probably
1: terrified that she's going to die of this poison that's Perhaps,
0: awful yeah so um so that's doan walking weirdly and when officers looked further into the cctv footage they noticed that city her accomplice was also walking weirdly as she made her way to the bathroom as she stepped onto some escalators, she too was holding her hands abnormally away from her body. And she didn't touch the handrail either on the escalator, which I think in pre-COVID times is something that you would have instinctively done, I think.
1: I probably still do, to be honest. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I don't even think about it.
0: Yeah. I, I, yeah. So
1: yeah, it's very odd that she hasn't.
0: Yeah. She, I just
1: don't believe them that they knew that they, they thought this was baby oil. Because Interesting. I think you... You would, if you, if it was baby oil, you'd just grab a pack of tissues out your handbag.
0: Yeah. And clearly the girls are going to the bathroom to wash their hands, um, to wash this substance away. So, officers were convinced that Doan and C T were telling a pack of porkies about the YouTube videos and the baby oil. If it was just baby oil, then, as Bethan said, why were they being so cautious with their hands and why did they race to the bathroom after the attack? Couldn't they have just rubbed their hands together and wiped the remaining residue onto their clothes? When questioned, the women said they had been conned into committing the murder. They said they had been approached separately by a group of men who were making YouTube videos. These men had offered the women hundreds of dollars to take part. So I just want to try and emphasise, because I don't think I've made it clear enough, but... Um, these women very much said they'd never met before they'd been approached in their own respective countries by a group of men um on behalf of a production company asking them to star in these youtube videos and they weren't starring in them together so it was almost like a mirror image of of what was happening across two different countries
1: and i kind of get that because people do kind of they want to do these um you know when everyone dances i don't know what they're called, but people will get together and do stuff and youtube pranks are quite a big deal now yeah. so it's it is believable um that you would start off in that aspect but their behaviors around the hands and the, the substances is too suspicious for oh. me
0: so um these men, acting on behalf of this alleged production company, had offered the women hundreds of dollars to take part in these videos, and the videos involved the girls carrying out pranks on random members of the public. They were supposed to be funny, but there was nothing funny about this, and their story sounded so far-fetched that it was proving impossible for the police and the public, and Bethan, to believe them.
1: I'd also like to know if they looked back at CCTV of the previous couple of days and did they just or ask for witnesses did anybody have actual baby oil just put on their faces and some woman ran away giggling because I'd 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 like to know that because if they've done it 5 times prior and it's baby oil but then every time they've ruined their clothes cuz baby oil stained it or something like that I might believe them mm. But I'd want to know if it had happened any days in the lead up that they've actually been doing these pranks. Or is this the first one? Because it's just too weird. It,
0: it is really, really weird. And yeah, there was a thorough investigation. And I will absolutely cover off um, the lead up to, to Yong Nam's execution.
1: Thank you, Mark, because I'd like to know. That's fine. <laughs>
0: um, so 15 days after the attack, the women were charged with murder. And they were told that they would likely face the death penalty in Malaysia. But Doan and City were actually telling the truth, Bethan. Wow. They were not spies acting on the orders of the North Korean regime. They were ordinary women. Yes, they'd lost their way a little bit and been seduced by the promise of YouTube stardom and the riches that that would bring. But they had nothing to do with the North Korean regime. They had not been... Acting as spies, they had not set out to execute Kim Jong Nam. They really didn't know who he was. Oh my god! They really didn't know that they had VX on their hands. And now
1: they're facing the death penalty. Christ.
0: Um, so I just wanted to give a little bit of background about these two women. Um, we'll start with Doan. Doan had been raised in rural Vietnam by her parents, who were second-generation farmers. It was a stable, comfortable upbringing. She was a studious girl who excelled at school and although intelligent, she did lack the streetwise common sense that comes with living in a big city. Realising that she needed to broaden her horizons, Doan successfully applied to study accountancy at the University of Malaysia, and she fell in love with the cosmopolitan lifestyle that a more urban landscape offered her. After she graduated, she struggled to get a proper job though. She found herself working as a waitress, scraping by on a meagre wage. Having always harboured dreams of becoming famous, Doan applied for Vietnam Idol, but she didn't make it past the initial audition. And you can see her audition on YouTube, and fucking hell, I mean... i mean i I can't even describe her singing it was absolutely appalling she is like basically dismissed out of the room and i don't think she was that bothered because she just wanted to be famous and i suppose it gave her some exposure to that world um but following the unsuccessful audition to um vietnam idol she uh turned her sights to modelling and became a model. And then when a friend approached her about starring in a YouTube video, she bit his hand off. I
1: wonder if um, they used things like Vietnam Idol, like watching who was going in and was looking the most desperate, potentially, to look for people that would jump at the opportunity.
0: Yeah, she she was very much targeted uh, by the, this group of... Um, Men representing this it was a japanese production company that they said they worked for um, but they were actually north korean agents that were hunting for two women who they could set up uh, as executioners of kim jong-nam so city uh, the other woman had had a very different upbringing to doan she had been brought up in indonesia in extreme poverty She left school at the age of 11 and began working in a clothing factory in order to provide for her family. Hoping for a better life at the age of 17, she married the factory's owner and she quickly fell pregnant, eventually giving birth to a son. But this didn't prove to be the life that City had hoped for. Her husband continued to force her to work long hours in the factory, often from half seven or eight in the morning until midnight and she desperately missed her young son. Three years after marrying her husband, City filed for divorce and moved to Kuala Lumpur to start a new life. She believed this was the land of opportunity and at first she was optimistic and happily embraced the more western culture. But things quickly soured when she ran out of money and, very sadly, within weeks of arriving in the big city, City had begun working at a massage parlour as a sex worker. Now, desperately unhappy, when she was approached by a taxi driver to star in a YouTube video, she agreed. Unlike Doan, she wasn't particularly interested in becoming famous, but the $100 she was being paid for the video was alluring 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 oh my god I, never, I love that you can words. never say
1: alluring fuck's
0: sake why did I even put the word in oh, when I can't say yeah
1: well you are not allowed to edit this out either because you know our listeners I love how you say things
0: it's like pestle and mortar oh my god that again. is literally
1: gonna stick with us forever do you know what, this makes me so so sad that city is just literally she just that hundred dollars is going to make a big difference it will feed her and her young son for a, probably weeks and yeah. she just thinks that she's, all cool. she got to do is put some baby oil on somebody. Yeah. Mm. And I think
0: it's easy to think that she was a sex worker in Kuala Lumpur and um, that... The, I suppose sex workers in this country, for example, in England, they can earn decent money and you can get the higher end where they earn thousands a day. Um, but this is very different. It's a very different industry in Kuala Lumpur. It's very lowly paid. Um So $100 to star in a video, a few couple of hours work that was significant that was a significant payday for City and not only would that money go towards as you said Bethan feeding herself and her son for probably a number of weeks she also sent some of it back home to her family which I just thought was the sweetest thing
1: I also think as well I know some sex workers can earn a lot but a lot even in this country a lot of people can't it's not you know it's not glamorous or anything so yeah for her to be able to do this and That's so adorable that she even sent some money back to her family. She's not a selfish person in the slightest here.
0: No, no. And, um... So with with city, as I said, she was approached by a taxi driver to star in this YouTube video. Um, so the taxi driver had met one of these four North Korean agents that represented this production company. So I don't think the taxi driver had anything to do with it, but he actually met city when the massage parlors they would close at three in the morning, and all of the girls would hang around outside to pick up clients um, in the in the kind of wee small hours and and um, have sex with clients. Outside and in the street, which again just broke my heart. You know, at least with her working in a massage parlour, there would have been an element of safety with that. Um but the fact that she would do, I don't know, maybe a twelve hour shift there and then come out and at three in the morning in the dark and um sell herself on the street was just heartbreaking for me.
1: That taxi driver would have known that she was really vulnerable and a good target yeah. as well, even if he doesn't necessarily know what for.
0: Yeah. He might have been bunged some money to find a girl yeah. to star in these videos. So this basically brings us back to 2016, the year before Doan and City attacked Nam with that deadly nerve agent. Both women were now working, albeit separately, for what they thought was a legitimate production company with a keen interest in making funny prank videos for YouTube. So throughout 2016, Doan and City starred in a number of videos which were filmed across Asia. They would travel on a plane to different countries to, to make these, these films. And the initial videos were fairly tame, with the pair being directed to run up to random members of the public in shopping malls and such like before grabbing their hand or kissing them on the cheek and then running away. Um, It was all very innocent and silly and not actually that funny as it was supposed to be. Eventually, though, the videos did progress to Doan and City running up to men from behind before smearing baby oil over their eyes and face.
1: So I would like to just say I don't like pranks. I think pranks are ridiculous. You know this from working with me, that if someone tries to prank me, I'm just like, I don't like it, I don't bite, I just don't find it funny and I don't like Mm. watching prank videos.
0: You're a freak.
1: I just don't get it and I don't think it's funny, especially when it's random strangers. If it's friends, I kind of still think it's a bit annoying, but fine. But this is just so irritating. However, what a background. What a lead up, like they have put a lot of thought and time into this assassination, not the women, obviously, the company or the group. That is absolutely mad that they have been doing this a year in advance to ensure that
0: all over Asia,
1: that is just crazy, really setting this up.
0: Yeah, totally. Do you know what it reminds me of? An episode that we did, um, I don't know, maybe a year ago on the fake shake and Talisa. Yes, and absolutely. And do you remember the fake shake? The fake shake set Talisa up and uh, basically to supply him with drugs and um, it was an elaborate setup that went on for about a year where Talisa was flown to Las Vegas on a private jet to meet with what she thought were Hollywood film producers. She was having this carrot dangled in front of her of this Hollywood film role that was going to pay millions of dollars. So when the fixer asked her if he could procure her cocaine, of course she was going to be like, yeah I'll do anything to secure this role but she believed it so much because they had spent you know tens of thousands of pounds falling Talisa into thinking that this was a legitimate business proposal and all the sort of trappings that go with that she was exposed to so meetings at the Dorchester in London private jets all sorts of amazing stuff and yeah these women are being played in a, a very similar way I think. Also, I kind of get what you're saying about pranks because I think sometimes they can be funny. But what really bothers me about these kinds of pranks and what they did to Kim Yong nam at the airport, even if that had just been baby oil, it's humiliating. And I think it's really unfair to do that to somebody uh, in a public space and to humiliate them. And a bit later on in, in the episode, in the script, I, I write about this kind of undignified death that young Nam had, and I, I don't just mean him defecating himself in front of the doctors um, and vomiting blood and sick onto the floor. I, I also mean how his attack started, that he was minding his own business, printing his boarding pass, and a woman ran up from behind and um, jolted him and, and really humiliated him. And I talk about him sort of regaining his composure after the attack, which he didn't really know it was an attack at the time. But there is almost that sort of like, oh, God, you know, did did people look at that? It's a bit like when you fall over in public and you have that awful feeling of embarrassment, even though you're kind of like a victim of something. So, so I totally see where you're coming from, Beth, and with it. I
1: also think as well, like, even if it is just baby oil, you could miss your flight because you're rushing and then you're having to go clean your face off. You might yeah, ruin your yeah. nice, smart suit, turn up to your interview looking like an idiot. Like you'd be you'd be very upset by it as well even if it is just baby I'm gonna sound like such a pussy right now but honestly it just I don't like pranks I just think they're silly and annoying and especially if you're gonna make a mess of somebody everything that happened to him after you know in the, the throes of dying those doctors will be fully okay with that because that happens on a daily basis and you may come around after an event and think oh that's embarrassing that that happened i peed myself or pooed myself on a doctor or something but they are doctors and they know what they're doing but like you said in that public environment where you're just looking at the departures board and then even if all you had was just baby oil smeared on your face you're gonna be embarrassed
0: yeah yeah and it's gonna be something that you would probably remember for Possibly the rest of your life, or certainly you're, you're going to have moments where you think back to it and feel like a fool. Um, so, so yeah, a bit of a weird tangent, but, but very true. I'm sure lots of you listening will feel the same. So these pranks in the build up to, um, the execution, these pranks in 2016, um, they were kind of like legitimate really, and a camera crew would be on hand to film them. The videos would genuinely be uploaded to YouTube. The girls would post about the pranks on their own Facebook pages, but as we said, it was all an elaborate hoax. The joke was very much on Doan and CT. They weren't being groomed for YouTube stardom, they were being groomed by North Korean agents to carry out the assassination of Kim Jong-nam. During their trial, the prosecution called Doan and ct out on their behaviour in the immediate aftermath of the attack, as you did, Bethan, and as I have as well. Um, it's a really valid point that you made. So if they thought the substance on their hands was just baby oil, then why were they acting so strangely? In their defence, lawyers obtained footage showing one of the women rubbing her hands together as she walked to the bathroom, which, to be fair, you just wouldn't do if you had a deadly nerve agent on your skin. And at this point, actually, I just want to make it clear, you might be wondering how Doan and City didn't die from exposure to the VX nerve agent, Uh, so knowingly or unknowingly they'd both handled it and had it all all over their their hands and their skin um but i just want to explain so vx enters the body through the bloodstream so with yong nam because the nerve agent was rubbed vigorously into his eyes it very quickly entered the mucosa and made its way into his bloodstream and that that was kind of like instantaneous with doan and ct it had only come into contact with their skin it would only enter the bloodstream if it were vigorously rubbed into the skin for quite a long period of time and when it comes into contact with the skin you also have this kind of grace period with vx that if you are able to thoroughly wash it off with soap and water within 15 minutes of exposure to the skin you will remove all traces of it and there's no way that it could enter into the bloodstream then
1: that is so interesting that's really crazy
0: absolutely and of course one of the women did become ill afterwards i can't remember if it was doan or ct um but the one that was sick in the taxi afterwards um she was violently sick all over the the interior of the taxi because she had still had some exposure to the nerve agent and that's how it manifested and she actually did report suffering ill effects for a number of months after exposure even though it was minimal exposure it was just to the skin and it was vigorously washed off well within the 15 minute grace period it still caused issues for her which I think is really interesting um, but the defence do have a point you know um, why would you rub it into your hands if you knew that it was deadly um, so that that's kind of my only thinking here that maybe like you know for example i think um doan was wearing the lol t-shirt which is a crisp white t-shirt um maybe she just loved the t-shirt and didn't want to smear it with baby oil um and may- maybe Doan didn't want to put hands on, uh, City didn't want to put hands on the escalator rail because it was going to literally kind of rub jizz all over it for everybody else. So I think we, we are having to take their word for this. And there's still, there is a small question mark. Well, there's a small question mark. Um, No, I'm laughing
1: at the fact that you said rub jizz all over the rail. Oh, well. Such a typical mark thing to say that I didn't even like react at first. And I was like, our listeners are just going to be like, oh, oh my God. So typical you comment. Um However, Standard. I now totally believe both women. because Wow, okay. Because baby oil and anything oil-based ruins clothes. And so the whole thing with the handbag, like, at the beginning, I was like, oh, because I didn't really believe them. I was but like, well, I know it would kind of, maybe it would ruin your handbag, but you could use backing hat. blah, blah, blah. I believe them because this setup up for a year... They will have at some point ruined an item of clothing that they love. If they've been doing this sort Mm, of stupidity for a year, I know obviously at the beginning it wasn't baby oil. I, they have, they have been set up massively, in my opinion. This is really, really in depth kind of a prank, not a prank on them because it's deadly and they are now facing the death penalty, but. I totally believe them.
0: Yeah. I think I think I'm ninety nine percent there because there's a bit more evidence I'm gonna explain in a minute. Oh my god, this is such a twist but, and turn because I'm like, No, nope,
1: they're know, guilty. Yes, but, they're innocent. Yeah, they're guilty. No, 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 <laughs> honestly,
0: this will further um enhance your belief oh, okay. that they're innocent. So wow. so I'll come on to that in a moment. Um there is just one interesting factor though. Um around the vx nerve agent so um it was mentioned during their trial that the women each had a component on their hands that together would produce vx but alone was kind of like nothing and and not deadly if that makes sense so so their own element to create vx when it was rubbed together not overly poisonous alone but when mixed together deadly And that would explain why Doan and Siti were not overly concerned about handling the substance, if indeed they were part of the plan. And it would also explain why they both rubbed their hands into Yong Nam's eyes. And it would make it easier to get the nerve agent into the country if it was two separate, unrelated substances. So it is plausible, um, but ultimately that line of inquiry wasn't pursued. And there's, there's a reason for that. It's because it's it's bullshit, I suppose. I
1: do think as well that that would make sense as to... So the first woman who puts her hands on the face first of all only has half. The second woman is probably then going to be the one who gets sick because she's got the other half. So she's got yeah, two lots, and then... Yeah. Potentially, that's why. If it was the second woman who, because we don't know like who it was who was sick in the taxi, I think that would be that would be potentially why she was more ill.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's plausible. Um, it's food for thought. But when you look at the circumstantial evidence and also other hard evidence in this case, I think you're right. It is pretty damn clear that Doan and City were set up. So the other bit of evidence that I wanted to talk about was um, something that they went through in court. So hundreds of pages of text messages between the women and the North Korean men who orchestrated the attack were read out in court and they clearly showed that both Doan and City had no idea what they were actually involved in. They really thought this was being filmed for YouTube and that they were pranking someone. So unless that was all part of the plan and a bit of a double bluff or a bit of a cover story for them, um they really really didn't know what they were talking about so um yeah i'm pretty convinced that they're innocent so two months into the trial because it was a very long trial in an unexpected turn of events and in something that will please Bethan, all charges against city were dropped and she was literally released from court with immediate effect as a free woman free to go back home and free to go back to her son the Indonesian government had reached an agreement with the Malaysian authorities and in a further twist, Doan's charges were also dropped, uh, but hers was uh, hers, her charges were replaced with a minor assault charge and she did end up serving one further month in prison um, because the majority of her sentence for this new assault charge had already been served while on remand. That
1: does make they me happy. They were both
0: released. Yeah, I know. I knew it would. Makes me happy, actually. So the four North Korean men who were at the airport at the time of the attack, the main orchestrators behind the attack on Kim Jong-nam, were, as I said earlier, able to escape the country and they evaded justice. And four further men were identified as being connected to the investigation. However, they were released back to North Korea as part of a diplomatic agreement with Malaysia. So there was lots of behind the scenes politics that Uh, enabled essentially eight North Korean agents to get away with this. They were the brains behind the operation. And there was also a lot of government politics around Doan and City being released, which was absolutely the right scenario. But the Malaysian authorities were really keen to pursue charges against them throughout the trial and the build up to it and quite happy to go all the way with it. Um, because they wanted to hold somebody accountable for this crime that was committed on on their soil. And these two women could have easily been the scapegoat. But fortunately, um, I wouldn't even say justice prevailed, common sense prevailed in in this case. So Doan and City grew close while they were held on remand, awaiting their trial. I think they were held in prison for like a year and a half because there was a lot of legal back and forth between... um, their arrest essentially and the trial taking place and their cells were next to each other but they couldn't really see each other um and despite having previously never met that was true they'd not met before um they actually count each other as family now and they're in touch with each other to this very day
1: that's really nice
0: isn't it? Isn't it? They both went back to their normal lives and Doan still harbours a desire to become an actress. The notoriety she has acquired perhaps makes that even more plausible now than ever before. But I quite liked that they both, uh, they'd both sort of escaped to the big city, um, for a new life and it had gone wrong for them. They were quite naive in the end and it had spectacularly failed. And it, it's so nice that they were able to go back to their, their Families, their wider families, and the support that that would offer. I I think I'm really pleased for them that I think they'll be able to lead relatively normal lives now.
1: And I also think um, to have to go through something like this is really horrendous, but at least they do have each other to refer back to, I guess, and to talk about this. And you have somebody who knows what you've also gone through in a scenario that I would. I would be quite happy to say no other person in the world aside from these two women has been through. Um, yeah. They've they've at least got somebody to talk to about this and to share those, you know, the flashbacks and the horrendous moments and the the fear and the, you know, the dread of being in prison at least would have been lessened ever yeah. so slightly by having a friend.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, it's it's really important to be able to talk about that kind of trauma that they went through and they can talk about it with each other because each other will understand the other. So you could say there is a happy ending with this story, but we mustn't forget that a man died. He was a father, a husband, a friend. He was 45 years old and he died in humiliating circumstances, in agony, far away from home. Justice has not been done and will never be done for Kim Yong nam He wasn't murdered by the North Korean men who orchestrated his attack, he was murdered by his brother, Kim Yong un a man that has since ingratiated himself with respected world leaders, a man who is taken seriously on the political world stage, a man who has murdered countless members of his own family and many millions of his subjects. So, you know, this really is um, in memory of Kim Jong-nam, just because he was part of a a really weird family. He exiled himself from that and built a new life, and he was a relatively normal guy, and he's a murder victim, and justice has not prevailed for him or his family.
1: That was such an interesting episode, Mark, and um, I'm so glad you decided to cover it, because I did not know anything, and I've been on a roller coaster. so... What an incredible case and very well written as well. So thank you.
0: Thank you. I laboured over this one. Um, If you found it interesting, you might want to check out Assassin's. Which is a true crime documentary from the makers of Netflix's The Keepers and Assassins takes a deep dive into North Korea and of course into the assassination of Kim Jong-Nam. It's out now in virtual cinemas and on demand and I'll put some details in the show notes. Um, but I highly recommend it. We, we've not been paid to say that it's, um, the production com- the distribution company of that film got in touch and said, would we be interested in covering this case and, and mentioning the documentary? And I'd always wanted to cover the case because I, I've always found it fascinating. So it was all, always on the list, but, um, but this kind of um, accelerated its position. And I watched the film. It's about an hour and 40 minutes. I watched it on Amazon Video Prime, Prime Video, and um, it's fascinating. It was really, really well put together. The, the city and Doan feature heavily in it, first-hand interviews with them um, throughout and also afterwards. And it is um, it's kind of pay-per-view. Uh, But it's really, really worth investing, you know, the price of uh, a couple of coffees in a couple of hours of of, um, entertainment. You will be able to immerse yourself further into this case.
1: I am personally, when you put the thing about the um, about the film up and you were discussing it, I purposefully didn't look into it so that I would not know anything. And now that is my afternoon viewing sorted for today.
0: Honestly, it's really worth it, particularly at the moment. We can't do a lot. Um, I watched it yesterday morning and yeah, it's like, I was just gripped by it because it's, it's obviously it goes into lots and lots of detail, but it tells the story with such heart. And I hope I've been able to do that. A little bit in, in this case here today. Um, because City and, and Doan, whilst there's that tiny element of doubt, I I don't really doubt their story. Um, I think we have to absolutely accept that they were, were victims in this too, but I'm really pleased that there's a happy ending for them at least. So thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our amazing show sponsor. Join me and Bethan and head over to curve.com slash red to revolutionize the way you manage and spend your money. And um, whilst I'm kind of, you know, asking a favour, if you want to head over to Patreon and support us there, then please head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. There's loads of stuff going on. It's a really exciting community of people that we've built and, um, and lots of interesting uh, things that we've got going on. So do check it out. So until next time, we will see you then.
1: Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.
0: Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy, and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.